In the city of Detroit, the name Toco is both respected and feared by anyone with the slightest knowledge of its underworld history. They are the survivors of a bloody prohibition war that conquered their enemies and established what is now known as the Detroit Partnership. They are a special breed. Not so far down the bloodline, a great-grandchild is born into the Toco clan, but he's known as a defado, a man whose lineage is not full Sicilian. Even worse, his Sicilian lineage comes from his mother, making him ineligible to ever make a real name for himself in the Toco regime. But this man is a Toko and will grow up strong in the ways of Cosa Nostra. He will serve his family and strike fear into the hearts of anyone that is crazy enough to challenge him. With fists like steel and a disposition to match, he will use his genetic fearlessness and a vicious cunning to pursue a life of crime that is hard to top. This is the legend of Alan Gunner Lindblom. I wouldn't know a gunman if I saw one. Gangster era stuff. Time feuds of public enemies bring a rain of terror and baffle police. How did this famous gangster treat you? He treated me wonderful. This is what I'm telling you, what I'm exposing. This is my doom, 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 doom. Uh, the next thing, Gunner, final show. You know, it's it's uh, almost it's almost inconceivable that we're going to do another show without Gunner being mentioned in it, right? No, so. we'll have to start our third season when we're done. Yeah, and I've already talked to him. He agreed that he would like pop in and like give commentary and stuff like that and take part in the shows down the line. So we haven't seen the last of him, but uh, what an amazing experience with this guy. And I really want this show to be the crescendo of a great adventure we've had. The cool news is he just got a deal for an AM radio show in Detroit on 910 The Superstation. Friday, 7 to 9. And it's not just a station. It's a station with like a, a huge reach, like a thousand mile reach. There's not that many in the country that have it. But if not, you can follow the station on Facebook. It's Detroit 910 Superstation. If you look it up, you can find it. And you can subscribe. And then his uh, show will be broadcasted live. Great. And he's going to do gang stories. He's going to do um, politics. He's going to do local politics for Detroit, which Detroit's a freaking mess, you know. It'll be interesting to see how he handles it and how it goes. But uh, we wish him nothing but the best on this. And uh, man, it's going to be cool. Yes, good to f good for him. Congratulations. Yes. One thing I got to tell you guys, I forgot. You know, I, I try to tell you everything at our team meetings and stuff, but sometimes I forget things. Yeah, I can't wait for this. I got a meeting about a month ago that was like a congratulatory email, right? And uh, they said, congratulations, you made the podcast rankings, blah, blah, blah. And that's in the subject line that gets cut off. So I look. The long and short of it is we are ranked 239th in true crime in Belgium. <laughs> Belgium. <laughs> because there is no gangster podcast category right now that I'm aware of, which is one of, no, which one of the isn't. things I am dying to change. You know, that's when why I... Yeah, there should be. That's why I really try to build up this genre and like anybody that's doing it well, like a bad guys podcast or whoever, I try to build them up because I think we're all in this together. That's just my take on it. You know, we're like a little niche of true crime. That's not right because we're, we're something totally different. Yes, right. Well, there's so much crime. It all needs to be broken. Yeah, but true crime is like, when I think true crime, I think uh, last podcast on the left, uh, my favorite murder. Right, um, right. Crime junkie. Yes. Yeah. How, how good is she? Right. Right. Yeah, and I'm awesome. like, 
So partly I think we don't belong in that same category because it's a different subject matter. And also I don't want to compete against those guys. Anyway, so it says, congratulations, you've ranked in Belgium in the top 239. <laughs> That's like, hilarious. I'm like in the true crime division. I'm like, well, how many freaking podcasts are they listening to in Belgium? Right? Apparently a lot. Well, what is, here's what it takes to be 239. Two. <laughs> Wow. wow. I looked at it because I've got in my uh, server thing, I have demographics I can look, right? And I see Belgium lit up. And like that month, two people downloaded the podcast in Belgium. <laughs> I can only assume there's some kind of plaque on the way. I haven't got it yet. <laughs> I hope it was actually some Belgian citizens and not some Americans on vacation. That's what I hope. You hope. We had way more people in Australia and we've had <laughs> more people in India, but I did that interview in India, remember? Oh, yes. So right. you guys have no idea the work I put in. <laughs> we, get, we get a little bit of in Ireland and England and things like that. Uh, New Zealand, a little bit. Australia, not bad. But nothing like America. We're American. You know, everybody in the USA. It's, it's our thing. Well, thanks, Belgium. Thank you, Belgium. And that's yeah. it. Uh, I was talking to Joshua, the intern, and laughing about it. And he goes, well, I'll tell you what, Dad, that's the sweet spot. You don't want to be 238 in Belgium. Because then you go on vacation, you can't even walk down the street without people no. hounding you. And- <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly right. It's like if one, three or four people start to listen, then you can't even leave the hotel room. So you're, you're right where we want to be. We are right where we want to be in Belgium. <laughs> but when we're in Belgium looking for some good chocolate, we might want to throw our name out. Yeah, yeah. I don't know anything about Belgium. Do they have chocolate? Oh, yeah. Belgium chocolatiers are some of the best in the world. And that is where French fries originated. That doesn't make any sense. The French stole it, huh? I'm just telling you what I know. And they also have some really uh, good religious relics. And I know all this because I have a younger child who, when he was about six, kept a coin jar that he put money in because he always wanted to go to Belgium. For the waffles. And the waffles, yeah. So he wanted to go to Belgium. That was his dream vacation. And um, I think he's still filling the jar up. I had no idea Sam was such a dork. Shout out. (laughs) Let's do it. Cue the music. Now for the Partners in Crime shout out. To Sam, we had no idea you were such a dork. (laughs) Yeah, we had no idea. It's all right, though. He's a phenomenal athlete, so uh, he'll overcome our scrutiny. He's going to beat us with his new bat. So the last thing in news was a yeah. death of a, of a mob favorite. I woke up in that morning and I can't tell you, I always thank people who give me the latest details and uh, the news flashes like uh, Fernando Moreno, you always hit me up fast and stuff. So I think he was the first one that hit me, uh, the death of Peter Gotti. So we just want to uh, kind of do a little bit of obituary and just give a little nod to that event in the news. All right. From the Associated Press by Michael Balsamo. Gambino crime family's elder Gotti, Peter, dies in prison February 25th, 2021. Mobster Peter Gotti, the brother of notorious Gambino crime boss John Gotti, has died while serving a federal prison sentence, a person familiar with the matter told the AP Thursday. Gotti, 81, died of natural causes while incarcerated at the Federal Medical Center in Butner, North Carolina, said the person, who could not discuss the matter publicly and spoke to the AP on condition of anonymity. Gotti was sentenced to a 25-year term for his conviction in 2003 on racketeering and other charges, alleging he took command of the Gambinos after his brother was locked up. 
According to one source, Peter Gotti had been sick for some time, suffering from thyroid problems, and was blind in one eye. He had sought an early release, citing his poor health and his rejection of the gangster life in an effort to avoid dying in prison. He served more than 17 years behind bars. John Gotti, who was known as both the Dapper Don because of his expensive suits and silvery sweatback hair, and the Teflon Don after a series of acquittals, was serving a life term for racketeering and murder when he died of cancer in 2002. Rest in peace. They should have let him out. Well... He was the boss, right, for a time? Okay, he was the boss, but he was not a John Gotti caliber boss, for one thing. I'm sorry, at some point, you're blind, you're dying. It's just a human thing to do. Am I wrong on this? Well, if you're related to one of the victims of the Gambino family, you're probably... He got it better than my loved one. Oh, guess who he tried to extort? Who? Who? Steven Seagal. Ooh. Steven Seagal's a cop. Yes. <laughs> Exactly. Actor. So he, he so he extorted Steven Seagal. So what? <laughs> I'm sure that was low on his list of offenses. Seagal was under siege, if you will. He's actually was known as being too nice as a boss. They called him the gentle Don in disparaging terms. There so, you go. And I'm saying he was he was dying. I'm saying in the last two weeks of his life. I don't know. Maybe it's just me. Maybe I'm a soft touch. But I don't know. Let him out of freaking jail. Let him die. Uh, yeah, it says his request for compassionate release, uh, citing his failing health, were both denied. Both in 2019. Yeah. They're not going to do it. They worked so hard to put this family behind bars. They're not going to do it. Oh, well. Maybe. I don't know, man. I, I don't know. <laughs> it's too late now. Like I said, I feel like I'm a pretty normal guy and I have normal guy thoughts. And I think most people are with me on this. I'm going to say you're wrong. You are not a normal guy. And you don't have normal guy thoughts. Come on. Agree to disagree. <laughs> no, his lawyers, when he was on trial in 04, they said he was blind in one eye. And they also said he suffered from uh, sciatica, emphysema, rheumatoid arthritis, depression, post-concussion syndrome, thyroid goiter. All that stuff. They said he was. They said he was dealing with right. hot mess. He was a hot mess. Two weeks in a hospital bed, surrounded by his family. That's all I'm saying. Rest in okay. peace, Pete Gotti. Yep. Let's let's move on. Partners in crime. I'm Bill Crooks, just an ordinary guy, nobody to worry about. Sitting next to the dangerous Zach the Zip Griffith. Hello. And the enchanting Amory Giuliano. Hi. Good to hear everybody again. I got to tell you, everybody loves your voice. Like, people are always asking me about you. Some tells me that uh, my husband would beg to differ. <laughs> <laughs> it comes off well on the podcast, though. People are like, man, her voice. I'm like, yeah, I guess it works. You know, if, if I could kick her off the show, I would, but I can't because you're killing it. I'm the reason we're number 289 in Belgium. <laughs> 239. Come on. 239. Man. 289. That's like, th- those guys. That's the gutter. Those guys are dicks. <laughs> <laughs> you guys suck. That's right. They suck. <laughs> At 279, the listenership became zero. But they still had to give 300 spots out, you know? <laughs> anyway, lurking in the shadows. I think he was actually called out on YouTube by Gunner as being a lazy ass. <laughs> oh, no! <laughs> Which is kind of cool because Joshua the Intern is getting famous. It's Joshua the Intern. What's up? 
Gunner nailed that one. I couldn't be more proud. So, back to Gunner. There's a ton of things that brought us to this point, and if you're starting with episode four, I gotta warn you, it's not a good idea. You should go back to one, because there's a ton of yeah, things lost. that happened that led us to here. You need to watch these in order, people. You really do. Or listen to them, I'm sorry. Right, and if you like this show, I'm telling you, it's nothing. He's got a YouTube channel. Just uh, search YouTube, Alan Gunner Lindblom. He's got probably 151 different kinds of shows. And you really get to know the man, <laughs> not just the gangster. But it's amazing. And like when I've done this, I, don't, I can't even tell you anymore how many hours of interview time I spent with him. And then he gave me full legal access to all his YouTube stories. So basically he was like, have at it, you know, at the end. Because I'm like, look, it'd be a lot easier if I could just steal some audio clips from here and there. <laughs> Which would account for some of the discrepancies in audio you might have heard during this presentation, right? But uh, to get you to this point, we were in New York last time, right? Yes. He did more in New York than I put in. And I always have to decide what to put in and what to leave out. And there's a lot of reasons for that. It's not necessarily that I gave you the greatest stories. You know, it could be that the sound quality just didn't add up and it didn't sound right. It could be that it went too long and I can't have four two-hour episodes, right? So there's more is what I'm saying. And there's more that is just as good as the stuff I put in. This guy could tell a story about going to Circle K and getting a Twinkie, and it's an amazing story by the time he's done <laughs> because he is a world-class novelist, right? Right, But right. it's it's true. Anything I could verify about anything he told me checked out to, to a T. So, like I said, go check him out. But I want to get you back up to speed. He was in New York. The, the part I left out that I think is worth noting is he did a couple straight jobs. He worked for a textile company and some kind of fashion gig or whatever. And of course, he breaks Al eventually and he ends up stealing fabric and selling them to somebody else. He's breaking in and, you know, he ends up criminal. And uh, there's a whole textile thing where there's like cocaine involved and all kinds of other shady crap. And he'll detail it. it it's all out there if you want to find it. I was going to put it in, and as I was editing, I realized, like, holy crap, this show is going to be, like, two or three hours by the time I'm done. So I ended up taking it out, right? And like I said, there's a lot of times where we get excited and talk too loud and the microphone pops, and I can work around a lot of it. Sometimes there's 16, 17 pops, and I'm like, it's distracting, and I make a creative call to leave it out. Not that it wasn't an amazing story. So I would encourage anybody that liked these shows to go back and get to know this guy better. Yes, I didn't obviously know of him, but it's been fascinating. It is. He's a fascinating guy. And uh, yeah. I think through this, you get close to somebody. Uh, I, I consider him a friend. If he called me up and wanted something, no way I wouldn't do right. it. Right. You know, this, he's been great for the show, and uh, I, I like the guy. I hope I know him the rest of my life. You know, that's the way I feel about him. So to get you up to speed, like I said, he's back from New York. He's kind of been battling a drug addiction. And I didn't cover this a lot. He went to New York once before to visit his sister, and he was already starting to take pills and stuff. So he's kind of like uh, getting into drugs, getting clean, getting into drugs, getting clean. He's uh, hanging out with his buddy Joe that I had some interview excerpts. Don't forget him, right? At some point, they start doing heroin together. And he kicks heroin when he goes to New York. But there's always this, there's this lingering heroin habit. There's this lingering pill habit. Uh, he never struck me as a big drinker. 
and it still doesn't. Interesting. But yeah, it still doesn't. I don't, I don't know that he ever takes a drink. I don't know for sure, but I, I get that impression. His mother died. Mm. Right. That's hard. That's hard. And I, I think when you're on drugs and you're doing things like that, you don't intellectually process things on a mature level. Right. And so all these things are kind of coming back. Uh, I didn't get a great story on this, but it's come up several times. He knew two girls pretty well, girls that he liked. They dated some guy and just kind of out of the blue, like you hear all of a sudden they were murdered. And this is the world he's he's coming up in. He actually told a story not too long ago where he was at a game just hustling people in three dice. He walked out and found out that 20 minutes later, these guys came in and killed everybody or shot five people Jeez. and killed a girl. This is the world he lives in, okay? Jeez. Now, on top of this, He's a defetto. He's committed to this family that's never going to make him a capo, right? And I'll pronounce it capo for you, Katrina, who doesn't like when I say capo. So he's got that going on. And he's starting to unravel. This is tough because you're, it's like you're, you got this job, but you can, there's really no way out and you can't go up in the ranks. Right. He dropped out of school. Uh, anybody that's going to go anywhere in the Toko family has a college education and they have the pedigree and the bloodline. He doesn't have that. And they're it, as smart as this guy is, they're never going to see that, right? They've already right. pigeonholed him. He's muscle, right? That's what he is. And you're never going to be million dollar muscle. So what's going to happen is he's going to keep doing crimes. He's going to keep beating pull up until he gets old. And then he's going to be put on a shelf. And he's going to be the fall guy too. Yeah, or you'll be the fall guy. The the life is going to pass him by, and he's not stupid. You know, he, like I said, he's a near genius IQ. He knows this. Right. And I think emotionally, just just crappy upbringing, he's, yeah. he's unwinding. You know, it, it's, it's all coming to a close. And that's where our story kind of picks up. And we covered this a little bit before, but I'm trying to give you these events in a sequence that makes sense. It's starting to get crazy. And like when I start to tell you all the things he did, I don't know the exact time because I don't think he knows. And we went through this with Spado where they go on this tailspin of crime and chaos. And yes. I, I keep trying to pin them down to what year was this? How old were you? When did this happen? Was it before or after this? And it's frustrating for them that I'm wanting to make all these things linear because it becomes right. a drugged out, chaotic, crime ridden right. mess. So that's well, that's the area we're getting into now. And that's what we've talked about, though, with he and Spado and that in their head, it's like this all happened in a month. Right. You know, or, and or it's what all... does it matter? You know what I mean? What does it matter? Right. It happened. Right. But it is. It's just because especially like when you talk to Gunner, he's like lived a million lives. Yeah. And he he's not that old. He's not. <laughs> and it's going to become more apparent as this one goes. Like there's some things that are going to happen that are going to blow your mind. Okay. Uh, the other one thing I want to add is when he gets back from New York, he lives with his grandparents for a time. Whether or not his grandpa was a made guy, I don't think anybody knows, right? But he lives there, and I don't know if I'm going to cover any of this, so I just want to mention it. He's trying to live there, and his grandmother's just blowing him ten kinds of shit. She's appalled at the way he's living. The girls are calling constantly. He's got a girlfriend. She doesn't like his girlfriend. And uh, if a girl calls him, she'll go... Uh, Lado, Putano's on the phone. There's a Putano, you know. And, and 
I'm going to start that around no, here. <laughs> the only stable thing in his life is his grandparents. And she's starting to be like, you know, just busting his balls constantly. So he's got to get out of there. Here we go. He's got no job, no prospects. All he has in his life is crime. Grandparents are driving him nuts. Living the life. Living the life. <laughs> so Alan Gunner Lindblom, the conclusion, let's get started. A lot of things happen in the fast-paced world of a gangster, always seeming to build to some crescendo before the fall. You know, it's interesting. You think 40000 bucks is a lot of money, but trust me when I say, hey, to one of my boys, I'm like, hey, dude, let's go to New York and go shopping. You know, that, that might be a $10,000 trip over a weekend, you know what I'm saying? Or, you know, let's go to Vegas, you know, and it's 10000 bucks. So, and I budgeted. I was super tight wide with my money. And the money went quick, dude, you know. I wasn't flamboyant and flashy. I had a nice, decent car. I always had a crotch rocket, a snowmobile, a four-wheeler, a dirt bike, a jet ski. I had all that, you know what I'm saying? And then I bought a house. Then I bought another house. And so, they weren't like mansions or really nice houses. In fact, they were just little. One that was a little house in Roseville, Michigan, which is just kind of a starter home. I think we paid 80 grand for it. And my second home was like 180 grand. In St. Clair Shores, a nice house, a beautiful house, one of the nicest houses on the block. A couple of houses from the water, from, from Lake St. Clair, and the two-story colonial, nice brick, all remodeled. Guy who owned it before me was a carpenter, so everything was custom, the fireplace, and everything. It was a dope house. It was a really nice house. But anyways, here's the thing, man. That lifestyle will catch up to you. So now I have two houses, all these toys, you know, a couple of side girlfriends. I didn't give them money. The side girlfriends didn't even know I had money. In fact, I had a whole nother house that where my friend had a, bought a badass house. It was beautiful. And I said, hey, would you mind if I freaking tell girls that this is my house and I just come here? Because he's got a spare bedroom that's fully hooked up. He's got a big screen TV, dressers, spare bed, everything. I said, he was my boy. He's, he's my boy, Brian Raper. I said, man, listen, can I, can I bring girls back here, tell them this is my freaking house, you know, and that you're my roommate? I said, I'll give you 350 bucks a month. And he's like, man, I don't need 350 Yeah, go ahead, man. So now I pull up at this house because I had a girlfriend who lived with me in my other house. I was engaged to get married. Of course, I always kept a gumar on the side or two, whatever. So like a scumbag that I was, you know, it's a horrible thing. I'm ashamed of it. But, but anyways, I would take girls to Brian's house and I'd walk in this big, beautiful house, a badass house. And I, they'd go, wow, man, you got a nice freaking house. So I'd, yeah, I open the door and Brian's in there with his girlfriend or something. And I'd say, hey, this is my roommate and that's his girlfriend. Or some of my boys would be in there with him. And I look up and say, hey, this is my boy Ron and Don and blah, 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 blah. And freaking, they're like, yeah, nice house. And I'd walk her right into the bedroom and, like, and they'd all laugh because, you know, I'd act like it was my house. As often happens, Alan Gunner Lindblom finally hits a breaking point. Maintaining the charade got to be too much, man. I got, I overextended myself. I was gambling. I was using drugs. I was, you know, partying in a way I should have never done. I should have never gambled. Of course you don't gamble. You're a freaking loser. My uncle Nicky taught me how to freaking uh, play house poker games when I was freaking eight years old. And I had always house poker games. I made so much freaking money off three dice. It was ridiculous. Every high school party I ever was in, I walk in there and say, anybody want to play three dice? I'll come and I'll bet. And they're like, yeah, sit down. And like, 45 minutes, I'd clear out everybody's pocket and leave. I'd walk out with 500 bucks, 45 minutes. 
They never figure it out. If, if you house the game, you, you win. I'd say, you hit four, five, six, you can house. You want the house? you like, no. I said, but you got to cover all bets if you house, meaning everybody wins, you got to pay. They're like, oh, no, I'm good. I passed. I said, I'll take it. And, oh, boom, I house. and just keep winning. And after like 45 minutes, I get them for like 500 bucks. And I'm like, all right, thank, all right guys, yeah, I'm going out here to have a beer, have, have fun. And I get 500 bucks. My boys would laugh every time. My girlfriend would get mad at me because she was like, it's like you're cheating. I'm like, I'm not cheating. The, that's the game. It's a game of numbers. They're suckers, you know? My uncles taught me that. I think it was Tony Giacalone who taught me how to play freaking CeeLo, four, five, six. If you house, you'll always win. You know, you're going to have five guys. Out of that five guys, three will lose, two will win. So there's always two winning, three are going to lose. And it rotates. Some win, lose, move in. And before you know it, the house is always winning. So anyways, and then that got into gambling. I went to Vegas one time. I won 14000 bucks in like two hours. I was like, man, hallelujah, this is my freaking jam. Like, I want to freaking come back more. So I started going to Vegas. I had an up and down, again, kind of pill addiction over like 10 years. I broke my finger in a fight in a bar called Harpo's. We beat the shit out of this kid and broke my finger. And I had surgery and they gave me like Vicodins and stuff. And I liked them. Then after that, I took for like a couple months, I, I got more Vicodins and Tylenol 3s and grabbed my and I eat them. Then I got off them because I went to jail for a couple of weeks. And then I might go two years and go by. And something was setting me off. Like uh, this girl I, that I cared about, she was murdered. These two girls. And that kind of was like, man, I need some pills, and I take them, and I go off for a while. And eventually, towards the end, it led to heroin. Naturally, that's the progression. But I was, out of the 10-year period, I was probably clean eight years, you know, seven and a half, eight years. But those two and a half years, you know, I really had to hustle hard to cover my habits. But it gets towards the end, I got a $200 a day heroin habit, two houses, two cars, all those toys, side girlfriend, side house, a fiance, all these bills, and plus I'm gambling. I'm going to Vegas, dropping ten thousand bucks in a weekend. It was just, I had to freaking make more money. And how did I make more money? More crime, more robbing and stealing, man. I was like freaking Beastie Boys. I'm more ill when I'm robbing and stealing. I was, I was out there robbing drug dealers. Okay, and remember Joe, right? Yes. So him and Joe were part of the heroin thing, right? And Joe was getting into the drugs too. And I don't know if I described Joe before, but he's huge. Like he's a yeah, bodybuilder. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, you have. Okay, so I, I don't know if that made the show or not, but yeah, as soon as I met Joe like online, I go, so what do you like own a gym or something? He's like, no, no, I'm a professional. And he explained what he did for a living. But uh, yeah, that was my first instinct was not that he works out, but that he must own a chain of gyms or something. He's huge, right? And he was back then. So he's into drugs and stuff. And finally, he's wanting to get clean. As Gunner's going down, Joe's ready to get out. And he moves to Chicago to get away from basically, not just Gunner, but everything, right? He's going to change his life and stuff. So he's out of the picture. Nobody knew I was on heroin. Nobody. Nobody. Not even my girlfriend of 13 years. I had all these toys, beautiful house. I still worked out. I went tanning. I was buff as hell. You would have never known that I was on heroin. Towards the end, the last couple of months, the people who knew me, really closely knew me, and that wasn't many. It was four or five people. They knew something was up because I lost weight. I looked pale. I was just acting crazy, you know, like very desperate for hustles. And like my uncle and everybody is like, man, they knew something was up. But only the last couple of months, like I said, I got I got pictures of me right up to freaking when I got locked up. And I'll show you a picture of me. And you'll say, this guy was an NFL linebacker, man. He freaking had his shit together, man. Nice cars and toys, big house, you know. But and in the end, I needed more money my habits and, and stuff were costing me more money than I had. 
So I just resorted to crimes that normally I shouldn't do. It first started with drug dealers. Started robbing dope dealers. Kicking in doors with a DEA freaking suit on with my, my cousin. Um, then he shot a couple of them. And that spooked me real bad. I, I stopped doing that. I robbed the pimps. I robbed the pimp. That uncle found out that I freaking took a pimp and pushed him out of a moving van at like 40 miles an hour. Like I had him in the back of a van and threatened him. I, I took his ID. Yes, he had his ID. Took his ID and I said, this is where he lives. I knew where he lives. So believe it or not, I went to his house, knocked on the door while somebody else held him at gunpoint. And they freaking told me he did live there, confirmed it. And then I went back in the van and said, listen, I got your house. I know where you live. I said, you freaking you know, use my name, say anything. And them hoes in front of the freaking car, car lot. If I see him up there again, I freaking... I'm going to come and kill you. And then I, I said, drive to my uncle. And he got going about 40 miles an hour. I opened the freaking sliding door and I said, get out. The guy's like, I'm crazy. And I jumped through a pistol in his face and said, jump, motherfucker. This pimp went flying down the freaking road at 40 miles an hour. But anyways, that stuff, my, my uncle, when he saw me do that, he's like, dude, you're out of freaking control, man. You're acting like Johnny. You're acting crazy. You know, something ain't right. This is not how I normally would act. I'm very methodical. I plan scores and really well and, you know, carry myself in a way but at the end i was way out there just crazy despite building a criminal resume that would impress most hardened convicts gunner decides to add bank robbery to his bag of tricks the first couple of jobs seem to go as planned more or less but when it comes to miscalculations it seems the third time is the charm there's an interesting aspect to this story and me and zach have discussed this to me bank robbing is a huge step up it's massive yes. i mean anything with a gun right anything with a gun but like a bank that then you're stepping on i guess it depends on the bank but you're stepping on like federal toes then and it's that that's my thing you know like it's one thing to rob a drug dealer because he's not going to call the cops right or you rob a person with a mask on or whatever. There, it, It's not that I'm going to go out and do these things tomorrow. But it seems to me there's levels. And when you're ready for a bank, you know you're facing a long time in prison. This is like a big thing, you know? It is. And I kept trying to say, uh, hey, let's talk about the bank robbery. You know, and he's like, ah, it's no big deal, blah, blah, blah. That's what got me busted, you know, blah, blah. And I'm like, and I'm trying to get back to that all the time. And he's like, you know, actually, I robbed three banks. <laughs> Trifecta. <laughs> Like, seriously, brother? And you don't think it's relevant, you know? He somehow, he changed the subject and we talked about other things. And when I'm going back, this is when I was stuck in Wisconsin. I'm listening and I'm like, damn it, I never got a real bank robbery story. I got some vague details. So I finally convinced him to go back and give me the bank robbery again. So finally he acquiesced and we did it. And uh, you won't be disappointed. Okay, so I'm going to tell you about a bank robbery that kind of went bad. I mean, I, I did a few bank robberies, um, and there's not a whole lot to doing a bank robbery. It's it's real easy to, to do a bank robbery, man. I did them in a way that was kind of funny, and w w wasn't your typical way. The first time I did one, I went to the drive-thru, put a note in there, gloves, everything clean, and said, listen, there's a bomb in there. If you don't send out freaking the cash right now, I hit the button and everybody goes boom. They look up, they're trained and told what to do. They put, you know, three, four thousand bucks in cash, they put it in the thing, they shoot it out, I pull it out, I grab the money, I drive off. Then they report, you don't do it with your car, you do it as a stolen car. How do you get a stolen car? Well, that's easy. It's definitely easier when you're a white dude and walk up with a shirt and tie on. And you go to the used car lot and you're like, yo, I want to let me check this car. I want to test drive this car. Man. And sometimes they're like, yeah, I need your license. But lots of times they just be like, yeah, man, it's a clean cut white kid with a freaking shirt and tie on. He ain't going to freaking run off. And you come walking up. Just walk up. You know, park around the corner, walk up and like, yo, I'm just a little freaking car. Don't try to get a freaking $10,000, $20,000 car. 
you get like a freaking twelve hundred dollar car. You walk up and you're like, yeah, check this car out. I need another kind of looks like a good little gas fishing car or whatever. whatever. And the guy's like, yeah, man, here's the key. Check it out. Take it a ride. Then you just take it and you leave and you rob a bank with it. You know, this is how you do. Now, if you always pick a bank that's as far from the police station as you can get, usually away from where police normally are, because they're gonna get a, a bank robbery in progress alarm almost instantaneously. So you got about. 30 seconds to 90 seconds to really get what you got and get going. And so the way I did it was just pull through the drive-thru, hit them with the note, and that's the way I did it. Never made a lot of money. But the one time that I had got a lot of money was where a kid who owed me a bunch of money for gambling. He was a gambling degenerate. He was young, like 21, 22 years old. So he gets into me like, I don't know. 15, 20,000 bucks. And by the way, I'm not a bookie. So I'm pushing his bets off to these heavyweight bookies. And now they're like, yo, your guy ain't paying. So I got to find this freaking guy. And I'm like, yo, you got to pay, bro. And he's like, yeah, I'm working on this and that and that. And I'm like, well, what do you got going? Like, what kind of scams can you think of? What can we do? And, and I'm thinking, this, and he, then he says to me, you know, my mom, you know, she works in a bank. And I'm like, your mom works in a bank? What do you mean? She's like, yeah. She starts telling me. She's the branch manager of some bank. And then he tells me, he says, by the way, the bank, on I think it was Saturdays afternoons, all the businesses like nightclubs and bars and restaurants and stuff, they would dump off all their cash in the drop box Friday night or Saturday morning, maybe. You know, after they count all the money and they bring it to the bank and they dump it off to the bank. So the bank, he said, every Saturday morning, it's always got like two or 300,000 bucks in it. I said, do you think you get your mom to go in on it? And he's like, well, listen, if we play it right, we can get her to do it. So basically the play is this. I'm going to meet his mother. Tell her that he got deep in debt with me and that I'm connected to very bad people who are going to want to kill him unless they get their money. So what we want to do is arrange a bank robbery while you're working. You're going to help facilitate it. And here's how it's going to work. So she's listening, she's listening. She's like looking at her son like, what the F did you get yourself into? But she doesn't seem that scared or freaked out by it. I said, so this is the plan. I walk in there and plant a fake bomb. Then I call you on the phone and say, listen, you have a bomb in there. It's remote detonated. You're going to grab $250,000 out of the safe, put it in a freaking, you know, one of those bags. And you're going to walk it out of the bank, jump in your car, and you're going to drive a block down the road, pull into this liquor store parking lot. At the back of the parking lot is, is an alley, and there's a dumpster right there. You're going to take that money out of the car, put it in the dumpster, jump back in your car, drive back to the bank. We'll be watching the whole time. If something happens out of the ordinary, if a police siren is sounded, we have a police scanner, and if the police gets routed to this location, we hear them coming, anything, we blow this bank. Everybody in there is freaking going to bite it. So you just walk out with the money. You're the manager. Nobody's going to say something. And if they do, it's none of their business. So you're going to take this money. Again, you're being watched. Start to finish. The whole thing, you're watched. By the time you get back to the bank, feel free to notify the authorities and say that somebody has a bomb in here. They called me and said, walk this money out do this and I did for the sake and safety of my employees and everybody in the bank I did what I was told so that's what happened <laughs> I don't really want to go into any more detail it didn't it didn't work out the way I thought um yeah the lady had, had 
tipped the feds off, told them what was happening. So I had a series of phone calls with her before this the robbery, and they listened to me on a wire. And so basically, they watched and waited for the entire play to unfold. She got scared, called the, the feds, and but it wasn't even the feds, though, because it wasn't even a federal bank. So for whatever reason, it was not the feds, but it was the freaking local PD, or it may have been in county. She did exactly what you said, so I get the money, I grab it, and I'm, I'm in a stolen car. As soon as I, I pull down this alley, zigzag down, and I'm just like, are you kidding me? 250 grand, I'm gonna give this kid like 20, you know? And then I'm gonna keep the rest, and I'm good. I don't have to work for the next freaking two years. Man, I can open a business, I can do this, I'm just that, I'm, I'm, no, I'm good, I'm so happy, I'm celebrating. I get on the expressway, and when I get on the expressway, I, and I'm going, and I'm in this stolen Yukon Denali, and so, all of a sudden, I look over and I see a black, unmarked police officer on the side of the road. And I just knew it was for me. I just, I just somehow knew it was for me. I, I as I, I don't know how I freaking knew, but I just knew. And as, as I go by doing like 70, as soon as I go by, it jumps, its lights go on and it pops off the side of the expressway and it starts trying to catch up and get behind me. Mother effer. I don't even hesitate. I just stomp on the gas and this the next thing you know there are cops everywhere i just too stupid to for me to register the fact that this was a setup and that there was a tracking device in the bag of money i'm so dumb i'm so geeked up and amped up that this actually happened and worked so i'm flying on the expressway i'm doing like 115 miles an hour in this freaking denali there's a bunch of cops behind me and all of a sudden i get up to eight mile right where there's a bend an eight mile i-94 is kind of a bend and all of a sudden this traffic's all backed up like there's a traffic jam like there's an accident what the f is this i got all these cars behind me cop cars i go on the side of the embankment i'm talking on the left side between the like the wall that separates the traffic lanes I swerve around everybody, and I'm kind of bouncing off the wall with this Denali. Not that I give a crap, because it was stolen. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm going around everybody, and I come around, down around the bend, and there's a cop car had driven down the exit ramp backwards. It came down the exit ramp and, like, stopped in the middle of the expressway with its lights on to block off the entire freaking expressway. And I swerve around him. It, like, kind of goes towards in front of me. I swerve around it. You know, I keep going. I get in this high-speed chase, and it, I kept losing them. I ended up losing these cops. I knew if I could get to Detroit, I'd be good. I freaking shake them, bake them, dude. I'm flying like a maniac. I was going so fast that they called off the chase. I was doing like 115, 120 in this freaking Denali, and I look back, and they're like a half a mile back. I'm like, good. I waited till I was freaking got to Allard, and I swung off. And then when I swung off the exit at Allard, I thought, well, this is a great spot, you dumb idiot. Allard is a police station right freaking there. So when I come up the off-ramp, and I like, turn around, there's a cop sitting there smoking a cigarette at the light. I look in the eye. He looks at me like, what the frick? I swing down the street, hit this street. as on like Woodland or something. I'm doing like 90. I literally did a Hail Mary, cross Hail Mary and blew through Beaconsfield Road at about 100 miles an hour. Blew through the light, just blew right through it. And then I get to Kelly, I swing around, I get in Detroit, I'm like, I'm safe, I lost them. So I go to freaking the store that sells blunts and I get a blunt, it's a liquor store that sells weed and blunts. It's a Chaldean store. I'm going to go, there's always a kid in the black selling blunts, black kid. And I walk in the back, like, let me get a freaking five and, and a blunt. In the parking lot, rolling this blunt, because I was just needed something to calm my nerves. And I hear, 
and you know the sound of a cop car coming, and I don't even look. I just stomp on the gas and start going. And that's what happened. I lost them like three different times, and eventually they freaking, I crashed the Denali, lost control, smashed through a house, got out and ran, took somebody's car at gunpoint, freaking got in another high-speed chase and freaking uh, a PT Cruiser, and a run out of gas, freaking got out and ran. The cops caught me, beat my ass, and I ended up going to prison. For Alan Gunnar Lindblom, the chaotic life of a gangster has finally come to an end with his incarceration. He's hit rock bottom, and it seems a life of self-destruction has run its course. Towards the end, I just stopped caring about life. I stopped caring about my life. I didn't have any value for my life, and I just didn't give a shit anymore. So I'm just like, yo, I'm just going to... You know, and I think that's what happens with a lot of guys, like wise guys, and who you know just really get out there like me. They're like they stop caring. Like, what do I care? I'm a freaking loser. I'm never gonna amount to nothing. When I ain't go, I'm gonna end up prison when I'm 30 or I'm 35, 40. 40. I might as well do it now, man. And in the meantime, I'm just gonna get this money, have fun, and enjoy life. And that's how you think, man. That's the criminal way. That's the way of the wise guys. It's the street guy. But um, you know, if I would have just done the right thing, been smart, and applied my talents and and energy to you know legitimate business and anything. I could be, I'd be worth millions right now, man. It's crazy. You just, you know, whatever. It is what it is, man. It is what it is. So we do a lot of stories that end this way. Usually amounts to a life sentence or an execution. The cool thing about this story is, for Gunner, it's really just the beginning. After that, it was, that was the game. It was over, man. I don't know. I was it. 13 to 50 years I was given. Uh, extortion charge out of Oakland County was the one that ate up all the other charges, so I got 13 to 50 years. And um, and for the other charge, I copped out a bunch of stuff, and then I ended up with the bank robbery, armed robberies, you know, uh, weapons, you know, gun charges. That was that. Off I, off I went to prison. That's when it got really interesting in my life. In nutshells, I ended up in the hole. When I was in prison, I ended up knocking some dude out, <laughs> caved his eye in, he stole a pie out of my my box when I was at church out of my commissary box. So I found out it was bunky freaking crack. You know, I went spaz on everybody in the unit. I freaking smashed the TV, called everybody a bunch of bitches. And uh, there's all these black dudes from prison. So every, I, everybody's a bitch. I bought everybody in here. You're my bitch now. You got a problem with that? Come on down here. Meet me in my cell. We'll, we can address that. I smashed the TV on the floor. So the unit only had one TV. I smashed it. I'm like, yeah, now what? There's no freaking TV. Now what? Does that make you mad? Good. Well, let's find out who stole my freaking pie. Anyways, his bunkie, little black dude who, who folded right up, came out with a razor and he was standing there shaking, his hand was shaking. I said, man, what are you shaking, man? You look scared, man. What'd you do? It was my bunkie, man. It was my bunkie. So I went up to the front of his bunkie, little stocky black dude who thought he was tough, barking all the time, punking out all the little white boys. Not me, but all these other white boys. So I ended up freaking knocking this freaking dude out. And he got tough I, a little bit. Like I said, you steal from me. He's like, ah, man, you disrespected me. And I freaking just, I let him have it. Just freaking caved this freaking eye in. Well, I'm lucky I didn't get restitution for that because I did pay his ambulance ride, but I could have got restitution for surgery that put his face back together. But um, anyways, so I end up in the hole. When I was in the hole, I end up getting into a douchebag deputy. And it's long story short, I was coming back from a court arraignment. My, my bond, by the way, was $5,720,000. Now, I kept going uh, where they'd arraign me. And then I'd come back with a new million-dollar bond, and the guys would see me on TV, and I'd come in into the county jail, and they they look at me, and, they, and they're like, yeah, another million. And I'm like, what? And I'm like, you saw it on TV. 
I could come in and they'd, they'd still picture me getting a million dollar bond and a judge a million dollar bond, a million dollar bond. They saw me do this like five, six times. The funny thing is the charge that, that gave me the most time with my bond was only 20,000. Yeah, they knew I wasn't going anywhere. So anyway, come on, I was coming back from court. I got into it with these officers. They were really being douchebags. They ended up jumping me, macing me, lay up tasering me, this whole thing. And then they made it so I'm permanently in the hole. So I don't go anywhere. I'm always in the hole. They call it a level nine which just means you just live in the hole. If you're in this county jail, you're in the hole. If I went there today, right now, if I got arrested or something, they put me straight in the hole and keep me there because I'm permanently in level nine. I didn't really care all that much. I, you know, the unit, I like to read. I just sat there and did push-ups and, and read, read and read. And I started reading these books. I was a big reader before that. This is where the books come in. I read before I went to prison. I used to read all the time, which is crazy because the old mob dudes would see me with books. And they'd be like, yo, Alonzo, what are you doing with that book? Like, I'm reading. I like to read. You know, that's kind of weird, man. This big, big, tough guy who's always cracking somebody's head. And you, know, you got a book in your hand all the time. It's kind of weird. I'm like, yeah, this is what it is. I like to read. So I was always in the bookstore. I was actually, I bought all my books from a bookstore where my, my wife used to work before I knew her. Never knew she worked there, but now I would I'd go after she worked there to go there all the time. I'd buy the used books there. I like there's a couple bucks. You buy a used book. I blow through them. I go through two, three, four books a week. And so, then in prison, they bring this book cart by in jail, county jail, and I grab some books and I read them. I get the best authors that I knew, Sidney Sheldon and you know Tom Clancy and John Grisham. And I was just like, most of these books aren't that good, man. They're okay, but they're not that great. Like if this was my story and I was writing it, I would have made this happen. And then that happened. And this little twist. And that, this character could have been better this way or that way. Before you know it, I said, man, I'm going to start writing. When I get to prison, I'm going to freaking write books. So I sat there in a hole for 17 months. And I basically would lay there staring at the ceiling and creating these stories. And I basically created my first three novels, the premise of, in my mind, beginning, middle, and end, conflict, resolution, romantic interest. I knew I could fill in the blanks once I started. So when I got to prison, you know, 18 months later, I bought a bunch of tablets, uh, a paper and pens, and I started writing. And I did not stop until I was done writing my first novel, which was about these two football players, high school football players, that one superstar. And he gets a scholarship, but he won't take any scholarship unless his boy gets it too, because that's his dog. His boy's a quarterback. He's a, he's a running back slash middle linebacker. He plays bowl. He says, I'm not going anywhere unless he comes with me. And then nobody wanted to give it to him at first, but eventually the University of Miami says, okay, we'll do it. We'll take your boy too, just because we want you. And so he signs a letter of intent. He goes down there and they tour the campus. And then and he's going to be down there for preseason, and, but he decides to come back home and kind of surprise his girlfriend, who he, he loves, this little girl. And he catches her with a dude. She's in a bed with the dude. He ends up like going spaz and, and smashes the TV over the dude's head and like kills him accidentally. So he thinks. And then like he never talks to the girl again. He don't know the truth. There's a there's a twist to the story. But anyway, he goes to prison. But his boy, who wouldn't have been in my University of Miami to begin with, if it wasn't for him, goes on to win a national championship and gets drafted into the NFL. That dude becomes like a NFL superstar. And while his boy, who's, you know, who helped him get there, is in prison. So boy signs a big contract. After his first contract was small. It was a few hundred thousand bucks. But the second contract is multi-million. He gets like an $80 million, 10-year contract. He hires this big-shot lawyer to go back and open his boy's case. And they go back and they find out that the dude that he killed was on a bunch of drugs at the time, like GHB, Coke, ecstasy, he was drunk too. And that he could have had a heart attack from the drugs and died and not from the beatdown, you know, dude gave him a 50-50, could go either way. Because that there was no autopsy report came out in the, the thing. He took a plea agreement. So 
anyways, it's the book's called Second Chance, based on a character named Chance Enzo, isn't it? That's the main character. So he starts talking about writing, right? So I was asking him, like, okay, so you're writing this from jail. How much research materials do you have? And he's like, not, not many. I got to kind of go off my own personal experience and kind of wing it a lot of times. And I was like, well, no offense, but what do you know about being recruited for the NFL or playing college ball? You're like, high school dropout, right? <laughs> he goes, well, I know a lot. Actually, I was recruited for the Lions. I'm like, what the hell? What? <laughs> you know, Lions, yeah. So uh, let's just play some of that. You're right. I didn't know I had to wing it, but I did have some knowledge of it because I, I don't know if I told you, but I, when I was on a run in New York, I almost made it to the NFL. I was playing semi-pro football. I guess it's a part of the story that I should tell. I uh, was living in New York under an alias. Long story short is I, I tried out for a big, huge trial. All these people showed up. Every musclehead in Brooklyn showed up or New York, whatever. And I went out there and I, I did my thing. And the freaking coach walked over and he was like, I didn't even know he was the coach. The guy's name is Maury Bennett, this big freaking black dude. He used to pay for the Cowboys. He walks over and goes, what are you doing here? 100 degrees, man. I've been there like eight hours, man. I'm just waiting to find out if they want me or not. You know? Most of the guys, they were giving freaking the pink slips and saying, good luck, man. We don't want you. They gave me a white slip, which means stick around until after. I'm like, I don't know what I'm so all of a sudden the guy comes over, he's like, Man, uh, what are you doing here, dude? I'm like, what the frick you mean what am I doing here, man? Same thing as everybody, man. Just trying to see if maybe you, you know, want me to play football, man. It's kinda of rude. In my mind I was saying it's kind of a rude thing to say to me. I thought he was making like fun of me, like, what are you even doing here? He feels not, bro, you belong in the NFL, dude. He's like, freaking, you just shattered everybody's freaking station stats or whatever. Every single station they gave me, man, I freaking smoked everybody there. He's like, you got NFL stats at every single, not one, not two, like 14 stations. You got NFL stats at every one. I'm like, eh, what are you going to do? So he ended up like giving me his contract to play two years of semi-pro football and did really good. We won two championships. And then he put me in contact with an agent. The agent took me up with some people and I, I ended up, connected with this other agent was got me tied up for the Lions and right about before I was going to travel for the Lions I broke my ankle I don't know I, a lot of times I don't mention it in, in interviews and, and stuff like that because I think people don't believe it they think I'm full of shit so I just I kind of avoid it you know but it's true um, the, the way I got the trial was actually a weird freaking thing man I was on a subway coming back from somewhere and I was heading to you know where I lived in Brooklyn and these two dudes across from me on the, on the thing young guys good looking young dagos the guy looks at me and goes, are you such and such plays football for Syracuse? I'm like, what? Nah, I haven't even heard of him. I'm like, dude, you look like you an NFL player. Because I was, you know, I was ripped up. I was very muscular, big muscle-bound guy. Not huge. But like, yeah, I was like maybe 210 pounds, but ripped up. I looked like a freaking NFL running back. And they're like, dude, you look like, you know, you can play ball. I'm like, yeah, thanks. And I never even played high school. Never even played high school ball. You know, I just played eighth grade for like, you know, 10 weeks. And so they said, you know that the Kings County Timberwolves are having a freaking open combine this weekend at Fort Hamilton High School in Brooklyn. And I'm like, I know where Fort Hamilton is, like three blocks from where I live. Because I play basketball there with random kids that just go there and play pickup games, you know. And he said, yeah, they're having, it's a big deal, bro. He's like, freaking Kings County Timberwolves are serious business. Like they are a farm team for the NFL Europe, basically, is what they said. It's like, go, go try out. It's like 35 bucks. You know, we got to lose. You show up, you try out, you don't win, you know? I'm like, yeah, thanks. You know, man, think about it. And I went and told my sister, who I was living with, she was like, I say you can do it. I'll do it. And that's what I did. And I went there and um, broke all the records, their, their team records. Broke them all. I had so many freaking records. They, they were always telling me, yeah, you broke this record today. You broke that record. And 
I mean, I was averaging like 220 yards a game or something. Just, you know, stupid stats. Real strong and fast. I mean, this, they, they said I was a, a combination between of Mike Allstott and Barry Sanders. That's how I ran. That's literally what they'd say. You're like, if you took Barry Sanders and Mike Allstott and you put them together, that's you. I'm like, man. Now if I could just get the paycheck, I'd be happy. So, that, by the way, when I broke my ankle, I loved football. It was my passion. It was my first love, my first true love. I was really good at it. Very, I mean, I was NFL caliber. How long I could have played at my level, I don't know. I probably wouldn't have lasted long because the way I played was full speed. I probably would have hurt my body. Maybe wouldn't even last the game. If you would have put me in the NFL on first game, I would have been so excited to be, even be there. On the very first play, I would have freaking tore my leg off just to get five yards. You know, because I didn't play high school. I didn't play college. I didn't have the championships. I didn't have the, I'm just like, if you put me in NFL, I'm like, my God, I'm in the NFL. I would have freaking crushed my every bone just to make a freaking first down. And that would have made it so I had a short career probably. I just didn't have the ability to slow myself down and kind of relax and whatever. So, and it was my first love. A lot of people were like talking about me, man. A lot of people all in the neighborhood, everyone's like, yo, I was going to play for the Lions, man. I was going to play telling people. We were telling girls that I already played for the Lions. And all my boys were like, yo, he plays for the Lions. Oh, boy, hell, man, he's freaking going to be flying. Big shot at NFL guy. And so when it didn't happen, when I broke my ankle, um, which was a fluke accident, the kids in the neighborhood knew that I was playing football, too, and had this tryout. They were throwing a football up and down the street, and I love doing that. I love doing it. But the, the agent told me, do not freaking pick up a football outside of this organization. Never again. Nothing, all right, because you get hurt, whatever. But I, I remember him saying that. I had a contract with him. So I get out of the car, and the kids are like, yo, hell, man, throw the ball. I throw the ball. I catch it. and all. I got, like, loafers on, man. I'm like, hey, I throw it back. I got to go, guys. I go, I'm like, come on, man, play catch with us. They all want me to hang out for a minute. I'm like, nah, I got to go. I'm saying, I can't, you know, I can't, you know, I'm like, come on, you know, these teenage kids, they throw the ball, I'm like, all right, because I love throwing the ball, I like, hell, well, I'll do it, and I, I throw, throw the freaking ball, and throw it back, and throw it back, throw it back, and I, and they throw one that's a little high and off to the side, and I jump up to catch the ball, and I roll my ankle on the curb and break my ankle, Joe, and then, of course, you're like, you know, here's some Vicodins for the pain, and you know where that led, and so I knew it was over, I told the agent, I, I mean, it devastated devastating like it it broke me bad it was the hardest i'd ever been broken in my life i was two weeks away from an nfl trial which i probably would have slammed and got a contract instead i ended up with a broken ankle and i got nothing i knew the game was freaking over i knew freaking my nfl career is never going to happen i mean it's going to take me a year just to recover from this injury rehab you know get back in shape they're not going to have me 27 28 years old is what it is it's not going to happen so I was like 27 at the time. That's when I was. I was 27. So that led me to my a downward spiral of addiction and this abuse of drugs and gambling and all that. Because within 18 months or 20 months, I, I went to prison. That was it. That was over for me. So it was the, the death of my dream is what caused me to freaking rock bottom. Well, it's like you said, he's Forrest Gump. He is. Now, Gunner's in jail, probably at the lowest point of his life, right? And out of nowhere, who shows back up again but Joe? I moved to Chicago to get away from certain people, certain crowds, bad habits. And, you know, started a family here. And Al and I go way back. We were both junkies at the same time. And we both have done things we're not proud of. But when SS got a control of you, not everybody pulls out of that. You know, a lot of people don't. I had a really good support group. I'm not sure how his was with, the, you know, things he was doing, the side hustles he had. 
So, you know, I had family that dragged me out of that and I moved to Chicago and got my shit together and here I am 30 years later, you know, but I can look back and see the hand of God in my life. So, you know, I'm a believer and I, I really think, you know, God works. He's the master architect. He does things that, you know, his will, not ours. So we're all intertwined some way. I was bored one night and I went on the Michigan's Defender website and I started typing in names of people that I knew that I thought maybe could be possibly in jail. And Al's just happened to be, and he just happened to be sentenced and put in jail like two months prior to me looking. So I knew it was fresh. So I wrote him and he had, you know, probably, you know, the last person he thought was going to write him. And um, I just hung with him for those 13 years, you know, wrote him and stayed in touch and stuff. And I was there the day he got out with his other buddy, Billy. So, you know, God works in strange ways, man. So Joe absolutely changed his life. And I don't think it's an accident that he all of a sudden gets online, starts looking for inmates and finds out. No, yeah, that is, I think, divine intervention there. That's the hand of God coming in and yeah. saving out. I just can't believe it. God was in Chicago. Yeah, what was he doing there, right? Yeah, you know, I was always preaching to him. You know, when he first got in there, he was, you know, he was pretty depressed, you know, but he said he started talking about writing. That was my... One letter to him was like, all right, man, you know, because I knew Al, I knew that, you know, to drop the dime, he's ready to scrap. And he's new in there. <laughs> he's probably making some friends and he's making some enemies, you know? And I'm like, you know what? When you feel like that stuff's, you know, getting in your head and you want to do something, just pick up your pen and write, man. Just pick up your pen and write. And anytime you feel like that, it might be 10 times a day, just pick up that pen and write. And he did. And the first book that he wrote was not a, you know, organized crime book. It was a football book called Second Chance. But he wrote that thing on loose leaf paper with his awful writing. And it was about, I don't know, a good 300 loose leaf pages of paper. And I actually read the damn thing on the train ride to work every day because I work in Chicago and take the train. And I read that whole thing. And, it, and I'm not a big reader. I, I can't remember the last time I read a book, but I read that whole damn thing. And I'm like, man, he's got some talent. So then, you know, he wrote a few other ones and, um, you know, his, his book, Second Chance, in one of the scenes, he's talking about a football game and he's acting like a sportscaster and he's talking about a quarterback hitting this wide receiver for, you know, 20 yards or something like that. And he uses the name of this wide receiver who I knew was somebody he went to high school with. So I was like, hey, you know, when next time you write a book, how about, you know, you're giving me some love here. And, you know, so, um, you know, I think he's got uh, Don in one of, his, one of his books or something like that. In creating these stories, Gunnar is given a new hope and a reason to start thinking about a life beyond the prison bars that are currently confining him. Then, like a crazy unseen twist in one of his novels, a surprise new character appears. Right when he uh, started doing his time, when I started writing him, I created his Facebook page for him. I had him, he mailed me a few pictures and I put them up there. You know, I put some pictures of him, you know, He's a big fisherman with some big fish, you know, and, um, you know, that's how that's how he met his wife. Maria is the most fascinating part of me, in my opinion. My wife, um, she is an enigma. Here's what happened. I get a JPay one day, which is a prison email, and she says, you probably don't remember me. I vaguely remember you. All I remember is that you were kind of a bad kid. She later told me that, you know, she heard about the fighting and the drugs and the, I think the mafia she'd heard of too. And she says, I was skimming through Facebook. She just was on Facebook and saw my profile, said on my profile that 
I was a Christian, which she is a new Christian. My wife was raised Muslim. She had five younger sisters, all right? And she was never allowed to go outside, never allowed, couldn't even barely go outside. No school functions, no school activities, extracurricular, nothing. She had to go straight home and babysit her kids, cook and clean, because she was Cinderella. They made her, her dad would beat her ass. If she didn't, if she mouthed off or said anything, she'd beat her ass. She dreamed of being a normal kid, of being able to go outside and ride her bike, to be able to go to a high school basketball game or a middle school basketball game or dance or anything. Never could have done it. No. And he tried to protect her chastity and keep her from being a whore, which he thought all American girls were. So I kind of get it. Um, but he, 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 he didn't know any better. The guy was just doing the best he could to try to raise five and six dollars. But it, she really resented him because of that. Like they hated him. And he beat her ass a couple times pretty bad. And, this, you know, that's bad news. You don't beat up a little girl. So she hated him. Irony is, we went to eighth grade together one year, a full freaking year, in the same school, which is only one hallway. I say this with the most humility and humbleness I can say it. I was the most popular guy in school. Not for good reasons. I was a bad kid. Everybody knew me. I was the toughest kid in the school, and that's good. But I was a freaking maniac. And I, when I walked down the hall... The, the people parted like the red freaking sea. I'm not joking. I'd have four or five guys around me, like my minions. I they walk behind me out of respect. I walk in the front, they'd walk behind me. And dude, and I came through the hall, but people just parted and they stopped talking. And I was that bad of a kid. My girlfriend dreamed about like like she liked like troop jackets. She saw LL Cool J wearing a troop jacket in the video and like big gold chains. She's kind of you know she liked that stuff. She got to watch little UMTV raps and she was into that. And she'd see, like, guy like me was exactly what she would have liked. But then after, I was the bad boy. I was the rebel. I was the one that she, she liked. She never freaking saw me. She has no memory whatsoever. How is that possible? We went we went to school in the same freaking hallway for a year. I mean, there's only 200 kids there. I mean, I mean, I was freaking like a, a glowing through the hallway type of bad kid. She never saw me. She has no recollection of memory. That's why I believe, truly believe that God has a miracle. God performed a miracle. He made me blind to her and her blind to me. It wasn't our time to be together yet. And that is what, is what it is. So you flash forward all these years, 25 years or whatever it is, and she sees me on Facebook. She says, I see you're a writer and a Christian. She's like, well, I'm a new Christian. I just became a Christian a couple years ago. My boyfriend kind of introduced me to Christianity, and she became pretty passionate about it. Not crazy, but, you know, not like a zealot or nothing, but she truly gave her life to God and Christ and became a believer. And she says, you know, if you want to, do a Bible study, and, and also I work for a publisher. She said, I work for a publisher that's based in New York. Um, it's academic-based, but I have some connections in the in the regular you know, fiction and stuff. It's like, maybe if you could have somebody send me your book, I could check it out, see if it's any good, you know, and maybe I can help. She was bored in a relationship that had no excitement. She was very bored. And so I get a JPay. I had just left my girlfriend. I dear John, my ex. I had been with a, this girl for 13 years before prison. Then I'd been with her like another six or seven in prison. And then I just told her to go on with her life. I knew she was dating someone at this point. I could tell things were different. She wasn't coming to see me. She wasn't sending me money. I'm like, just go on with your life, man. Do you want to be friends? I'm like, I don't want to be friends. Go on. So I was kind of in a dark, sad place when this girl wrote me. And because of that, I was absolutely 100% honest and forthright and me. I didn't try to run game. I didn't try to be romantic. I didn't try to say, I'm like, look, this is me. Yeah, I write these books. This is what they're about. This is what I am. This is what I am today. Whatever. I write books. That's what I do. And these are novels. These are the stories. I was a gentleman, but I wasn't trying to be a romantic with it. And so she wrote me back. Said, yeah, send this. And we wrote a couple of JPEGs with our prison emails. And then um, 
and started writing to me a little more often. And then my friend sent her the manuscript of my book. He turned it into a PDF file and then sent it to her. And she read the book, the entire 1,100-page manuscript in like three days on her phone. Everybody in prison tells me the books are the best books they've ever read. Big readers. There's guys in prison who've read thousands and thousands of books. It's all they do, read. They read all day, every day. It's like they've been doing it for 10, 20 years. They read my book, come back to me and be like, bro, best freaking book I ever read. Now, if I hear it from one guy, I'm like, wow, he just liked that story. It was good to him. And then he hand the book to the next guy and five days later, he comes back and goes, bro, this is the best book I ever freaking read, man. You're the Then you hand it to another guy and another guy and another guy. And when you get to like 17 guys, yeah, yeah, it's all I hear. I'm like, okay, I'm starting to believe this, man. I'm, I'm good at what I'm doing here. And then I get into another book. I said, well, here's another book I wrote. Read that one. They come back and go, man, I think this is better than the other one. I'm like, yeah, we'll try this one. And they're all just like, dude, you're insane. You are a freak. You're mine. It ain't like the rest of us, bro. You're an alien. I'm like, eh, thanks. So this girl, she, she reads the book. She says, you're the unicorn. And I said, uh, is this unicorn. In, in publishing, you have, like, sometimes yeah, you have good writers, but the stories are, eh. And then sometimes you have writers who have great stories, but the writing itself is, eh. And every once in a while, you have the unicorn, who is great story, great writer. She's like, you're the freaking unicorn. And I was like, you know, coming from her, you know, that meant a lot. You know, because she knew the business and she's super smart. And by the way, just to give you an idea how smart my wife is and, and what makes her the, you know, the literary expert is the fact that my wife, by the way, when she was like five years old, she read the entire Little House in the Prairie series by age five. When she was in high school, she got a, a literary scholarship that she couldn't take because her douchebag dad said, you got to stay home and watch your little sister. She also worked in the bookstore which would be the bookstore that I would later go on and buy all my books from, very same place. So she loved books. She loved writing. And so she's super smart. So she read my books, and she told me I was a unicorn, and she worked in publishing, and she said, your book is probably the third best book that I've ever read in my life. She um, would later recant and say, I didn't want to blow up your head, but I, if I was honest with you, your book was the best book that I ever read. And I was like, well, that's impressive then. And she's read thousands of books. So she still reads two, three books a week on audiobook. Anyway, so we started writing back and forth. This is before we fell in love. And then and you know, she said, I want to help you maybe help you publish your book and help you, you know, um, you know, see if I can help you. So we just started writing back and forth and we just found that we had everything in common. She loved the outdoors. I love the outdoors. She's like, where are you planning to live? And I get out and I told her where. And she's like, oh my God, it's like my favorite place in the state. You know, I've been there camping and blah, blah. Like she, her, she had a boyfriend in high school for 10 years, after high school, after high school for the first 10 years till she was 29, who was a dude who was a nice enough guy. He was a co-captain of the football team, kind of big football player guy, nice enough guy. He's, he was kind of, what happened, he was kind of lazy and turned into a bum, wanted to smoke pot, do nothing with his life. So she left him. But one thing he did, he did have was a cabin up north in the woods and that they would go up to this cabin like every weekend and they'd sit around the fire and smoke pot, tell stories and drink beer. And then she would go walk in the woods and she'd never experienced any of this. Again, she's from the city, Sacred Shores, and was a prisoner in her own home. So when she got to go up into the woods in the wilderness and like walk around for the first time in the woods and it smelled so pretty and beautiful. And she, all she wanted to do was go up north. Oh, so now when I'm telling her when I get out, what's your plan? She says, what's your plan? I said, I'm going to live up north. I'm going to live out in the woods. I want to go fishing every day. I want to go hunting every day. I want to go ride my four-wheeler every day. I just want to explore. I want to go camping. And she's just like, oh, my God, that sings to my heart. That's exactly what I want to do. You know. And then I start giving, hitting her with trivia. I would hit her with, like, the Latin name, genus names of certain animals and stuff and see if she could figure out what it was. She hit it back with me. And I hit her with trivia. And we talk about geopolitics and 
and all kinds of cultural stuff and and, and this science and this all this really smart nerdy stuff that that I know and she knows and we go back and forth. We wrote each other all day every day. We would send each other. I'm not joking about 70 pages of letters a week. 70 pages. That's 10 pages of letters a day. We'd write. So all we did was write and we played wordplay and we just impress each other with our knowledge and our ability to control words. You really get to know somebody when you write them in that way and you fall in love with love letters. You really can like stop and think about what you want to say and how you say it and really articulate in a way that's very fascinating. It's hard to explain. But anyways, and she started like falling in love and I, we'd start getting a little flirty, maybe a little, but I'm trying not to. She's married and I'm like, she might say something that's kind of set up a good pun for a sexual innuendo or something. And I'd say, nah, just kidding, just kidding. Nah, you could, I couldn't. And she'd, she'd come back and she'd say one, and nah, just kidding. Before you know it, it was a little more often and a little more and more. Before you know it, she came right out and she says, listen, you want to, I don't know if you're feeling the way that I feel. She's like, but I feel like I've, I've fallen in love with you. And I would be willing to wait for you. I would be willing to leave my husband. And he'd be willing to wait for you, you know, if you'd have me or whatever. I said, of course I would. You know, I feel the same way. I just didn't want to be a homewrecker. I'm not going to have him try. She's the first girl I'm ever completely honest to. I never lied and never made up anything. I never tried to run game, no nothing. I was just me. Just me being me. That's all I ever was. That one, that's the one that won her over, the real me. With Gunner, like um, we were talking earlier, this is when his life truly begins. It is. With his wife, just goes to show, like, once again, behind every good man is an even better woman. I always kind of joke about the romantic angles on Partners in Crime because there is none. Th this is the first. How dare you? Bugsy in Virginia Hill had a very nice... She set him up to be <laughs> murdered. <laughs> we all go through rough patches, damn it. <laughs> I love the optimism. <laughs> But when you hear Al talk about his wife, and not just on an interview, like when I talk to him personally and he talks about her, he loves her. He yep. beams and, and like you, she completes loves him her. like a like a Jerry Maguire movie, um, man. I, I, I can't remember the last time I heard somebody talk about their wife like he talks about her. Well, what about your brother-in-law, Chris? Yeah, it's just like that. Very That's what I meant. That's what I thought. That's what I meant. That's what I thought. It's been 13 long years in prison. Man, 13 years. I guess compared to more major sentences, you're like, yeah, that's not that bad. 13 years? That means uh, if I went to prison when I was uh, 10, I'd just be getting out right now. So you I think if you'd have gone to prison at 10, you would never get out. <laughs> no. There's a reason they never did like a Doogie Hauser goes to prison. <laughs> That, though, that sounds like a Netflix show. Uh, it's been 13 long years in prison, and so far Lindblom's dreams are based upon an uncertain future, one of hope but not certainty. One thing that is certain is that a parole hearing is fast approaching, and the odds of a parole board letting this hardened criminal become a free man are extremely long. Now, parole is a tricky thing in Michigan. It's notorious for what's called flopping people. Flop is when you see the parole board, they don't like what they see, and they say, here's 24 months, we'll come back and see you again in 24 months. It can be anywhere from a six month to a 24 months flop usually, but they average about one year to 18 months. And most prisoners get a flop, especially if they have bad institutional behavior, which I didn't. But one day I get called in off the yard and they wanna see me in like the school building this is when i was in level one i was only there for a few months and um they're like listen they're doing this college scholarship program where 
they're giving scholarships to like 150 guys that are from one of two counties, which is the highest recidivism rate in the state. Recidivism means they get out and they go back. So they want to focus a study group or a focus group on these two counties. So the Bill Gates Foundation, along with the DOJ and thing called the Vera Group, donated this money and they're going to do a study group. And you had to have at least a GED. You had to be within four years of your earliest release date. You had to be from Oakland County or one of this other county across the state, which is Grand Rapids. And then you had to have good institutional behavior. There still was like 5,000 guys that met that criteria. So they're like, we want you guys to write essays, write an essay on why you'd like to go to college. Now, I wasn't honest. I didn't write it and say, well, the only reason I'd freaking want college is so this get in this program or so it looks good when I go to see the parole board because I honestly didn't care about college. I was never going to use college. I'm a writer. You know what I mean? At this point, I had written seven, eight novels. I, was, I wasn't I was planning on getting out and getting a degree and going to do anything with it, which is fine for anyone else. I just knew I was a writer and that was my destiny. But I knew this would help me get a parole. So I wrote an essay. It had to be 500 words. Of course, I nailed it. I'm a writer. Smashed it. And then like a few days later, they call me out the yard and like, pack up. You're riding out. And I'm like, what's up? And the next thing you know, there was like five or six other guys. And they're, they're saying, all you guys are going to Macomb Prison. You're in this college program. And they bring us there in the, in the gymnasium of, at the prison. And they kind of brief us. And they say, you guys are all going to be in one unit. You're going to go to classes. The really stupid, dumbass thing is that they stuck us in a unit. Instead of giving us our own unit or something like that, or making it more like a level one where guys are short time going home, they stuck us in there intermingled with a bunch of murderers and rapists and people that are doing 20, 30 years. And here us, the smartest of the smart, getting college scholarships, bunking with murderers who are never going home. And, stuff. and they basically resented us and hated us, you know, from the jump. So we come in there, and we not everybody was young. I was... um. 39 years old, I think, when I got there. So their ages were from anywhere from like 20 years old to, to like 60, these guys. And so I won't even get into how screwed up the college program was. They basically stole all the money. Originally, we had, uh, it was like $1.7 million was enough to get all of us associate's degrees. Halfway through, they put us in a room and said, oh, I'm sorry, we made a calculation error and there's not enough money for that. We can only give you enough for a two-year diploma. So half of what we said. And I, I was the only one who stood up and said, wait a minute. Here you are teaching us math and accounting and all this stuff. You are a college who's teaching math to us. And you mean to tell us you made a million-dollar miscalculation error? That's a simple mathematic thing. They're each credit costs X, and you need 200 credits for an associate's degree. Times 200 times that will tell you how much it is per person. Times that by 148, you should have your simple math. I said, so you're telling me it's just a million dollars just suddenly vanished and came up missing? And they're all like, oh, well, don't shoot the messenger. I'm just telling you what they told us. I'm like, dude, we got robbed. They basically stole. They were walking around the school building, right? And basically they were writing off anything that was related to the school as part of the money they used to pay. Uh, that's how they embezzled the money and, and cleaned it was they walked around with stickers that said DOJ and slapped it on every desk, every chair, every everything. And they said that desk right there was 500 bucks. That you know chair was 500 bucks, blah, blah, blah. And that's where the million dollars went. It was chairs and desks that was already in the school. I'll never forget it. And there was a computer lab in the school. And like when we got there, it's a nice big computer lab, but they hadn't finished setting it up. And they're like, oh, it'll be set up soon. Set up. I was there for three and a half years in this college program. They never set it up, never finished it. We never got computers. We did get $100 calculators, though, for one class. They literally gave us a calculator, $100 calculator for one class. And I said to the teacher, I said, why didn't they give us iPads or tablets with this calculator app on it? 
or a little laptop, refurbished laptop or something because you're, nobody in there knew how to type. Uh, nobody knew Excel, Word, nothing. None of these guys knew nothing. So they give us a $100 calculator we use for one class and then throw them out because no one's ever going to use them again. And this, it was asinine. Anyways, it did help me get my parole. So leading up to the parole board, this is the stuff. So for the next three years, I'm in these classes and I'm doing good. I got straight A's. I got the GPA was like 3.9. I got a B in one of my math classes. I'm not good at math. I'm not good at that tricky freaking calculus and crap. So I go through this program and guys are getting their paroles. Guys are getting their hearings and all the college kids are getting paroled. I was kind of like about in the middle of the pack, you know, with my ERD, earliest release date. So we saw some guys go home, a few. And then about nine months out, they do this like paper sheet. You fill out this piece of paper for your counselor, and blah, blah, blah. Then you start having your family and friends like send letters to parole board, which they don't look at. Parole board's the laziest bunch of freaking scumbags. I sent a letter to the super articulate explaining my situation. I had friends and family, my wife, everybody sent it. It's just, they don't care. They don't even look at it. And this is what happened. So... After 13 years, you get nervous as hell leading up to this parole hearing. It's the biggest day of your life, ever. I mean, it's everything. If you screw it up, you don't go home. So I had good institutional behavior. I had, didn't have any major violent tickets or nothing like that. I had some major out of places. I had, um, I think, an insolence ticket once. And it's not, nothing major, not enough to, you know, to hurt me, hopefully. So I'm waiting to go see the parole board. They finally tell me that I'm going to see this guy. And my wife, you know, she's a research master. So I said, listen, this is the guy I'm going to see. Do your homework on him. Find out what his deal is. So she looks him up. He graduated from a, from a Christian university, which is A, bingo, you know what I'm saying? Good deal. I mean, I'm a Christian. So I'm thinking that could ha only help me. You don't know when your hearing's going to come. Finally, they're like, okay, they set your parole hearing date, you know. And it's, I think I was about three months out from going home. And, uh. Super freaking nervous, man. I am, you know, I'm going to see this parole board. And I'm going, my, your counselor goes in there with you, and then you can have one person. Obviously, it was my wife. She drove down, five-hour drive, come down from our house to sit there with me. I'm in the little lobby area in, in the control center. My wife, she's out front where the civilians are, and then they'll bring her in. Anyways, my counselor comes out and says, listen, there's a change. Uh, you're going to be seeing Dr. King. You know, the guy you're supposed to see, you know, whatever, you're not going to see him. You're seeing Dr. King. And she, she walks out. She's like, I'll let you know when you're up. It shouldn't be long. You know, there's a couple guys in front of you, whatever. So I'm sitting there with like six guys, right? And they're all like, oh, damn, bro. You got Dr. King? You're on a camera. You're on a, they're not there. Parole board's not actually, they're on a TV screen. You are looking at a camera as you talk to them. So of course they would never actually work and drive or whatever. So they used to, but not anymore. Of course they could be lazy. And guys are like, oh, dude, Dr. King, man. I'm like, what's the deal with Dr. King? He's like, dude, he looks like Malcolm X. You gotta be kidding me. He's like, yeah, he's a hard ass, man. He's a hard ass. But a couple of guys are like, yeah, he's a hard ass. He'll go hard on you. But he usually paroles you. So I'm like, all right, you know, whatever. But I mean, I am freaking the F out. Just heart racing, pumping. I'm sweating. I'm I'm full face flushed. They bring me in there and my my they bring in my girl. She sits in the table onto the side of the table with my counselor, and I'm at the end of the table. The camera's on. He pops on, and here's this dude. He's got a red bow tie on. And he looks like Malcolm X or something. And he proceeds to just go ham on me. Ham. He just, he, he keeps calling me a career criminal. 
and he's you know and he's like you know you obviously have no remorse for your, your criminal activity you you keep repeating blah, blah, blah. and I, I finally said hey uh dr king i don't uh, i'm not a career criminal he's like oh i'm looking at your record right now look at your, your rap sheet you've been arrested 38 times blah, blah, blah. i'm like listen there was a 10-year span where i didn't get in trouble for nothing and he starts flipping through all the pages and he's like oh, oh yeah and then you got busted with um you know 10 pounds of weed and and then you got caught with a bunch of heroin and i said no i didn't that was dismissed it got reduced down to a possession of analog which was actually steroids but it was in the file that i had been charged with just under two kilos of heroin and i'm like yo i got charged with that but now what they found guilty i i pled out to a freaking to a misdemeanor you know, and that was it before that I got busted with some weed and before that I hadn't had a case in 10 years and he's like well it was a lot of weed I'm like yeah but it doesn't mean I'm a career criminal I wasn't a career criminal I was just a, tr- a troubled youth I had no parent parental supervision I was out there in the streets I was doing bad stuff but I wasn't like killing and robbing and then he said my case I said, he's like well you were killing you were right you could have killed somebody and what you did you were arrested with a gun you did robberies bank robberies blah 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 and I'm like yeah I was you know that's king I was out there I was on drugs I was just strung out, acting insane because I no longer had value for my life. And I made some big mistakes. I said, I've learned from them. You know, today I've learned from the mistakes. I just want to go home, start my life over. I've been in prison working very hard. I'm a writer. I've written nine novels. I blah, 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 blah. He he even asked me about my novels. He's just like, yeah, okay, you've written nine novels here, buddy. And um, so he goes ham hard on me for like 45 minutes. Trying to, like, evoke a reaction. Trying to piss me off. That's what they do. They try to see how you're going to react. Like, you know, somebody pisses you off. Can you handle it? Are you going to be pragmatic? Are you going to lash out? I mean, if you go to the street and lash out, you can hurt someone. You can kill someone. So, at the end, he's like, all right, well, you'll be in touch. You'll know my hearing within the 30 days or whatever. So, you go back to the unit. I don't think I did great. I think he went hard on me. My wife thinks he went hard. I remember before he came in there, I was sitting there with my wife and the counselor and the counselor's looking at me. She's like, Jesus, breathe, man, breathe. And I'm like, I'm hyperventilating, man. I'm sweating. And I just, yeah. And I looked there and said, breathe. And this is the most important moment of my life. This is my life on the line, man. I could, I have a 50 year tail. They could keep me in here for 50 freaking years, man. I got a wife to go home. I want to, I want to get, start my freaking life. I'm messed up. Man, I've been gone for 13 years. I went away at 29. I'm 43 years old, man. I'm ready to go. Anyways, in the days leading up to uh, leading up to getting my parole uh, results, I remember there was this dude named Damien. He he was a young guy. He'd been back and forth out of prison two or three times. You know, short bits. One of those guys, probably a drug addict, maybe a crackhead or junk dope fiend, whatever. But he's he was cool, and he's he was like. I'm telling you, Dr. King's going to give you a parole. You're going to, based on what you've told me, based on your case, based on your institutional record, based on what you have going in the streets, you have a ready-made life. A lot of guys don't have that. You got a, a wife, family, money, everything you need to get going home to start life. So he, uh, he was telling me that, and you're going to, you're going to get the parole. You're going to get parole. And I'm like, man, I don't know. I'm scared. I'm tripping out. And every day, man, I'm just, I can barely sleep. I'm super nervous, you know, and, and, and some people are like, man, King's hard, blah, blah, blah. So I remember, I'll never forget the day. Every day I'd come in from the yard. Yard closed at like 3.45 and 15, I think, was count time. That gave you half an hour to come in, shower after you worked out or whatever. So I'd always come in really quick and check the mail because that's when they were doing the mail. They'd always have it in the desk. And I'd walk over and get anything for Limbloom? No. Got anything for Limbloom? No. And I would see guys. Guys would get their paroles or they would get their, you know, their flop. A flop 
came on a pink sheet of paper stapled shut. A parole came on a white piece of paper, two pages, stapled and shut because the conditions of the parole were on it, stapled to it too. Every day, you got anything from Lillum? Nothing. Every day, you got anything from Lillum? Nothing. One day, I come walking in, and it's the biggest douchebag cop that i probably ever known in all of my years in prison. There was a cop named Shep. He was just a douchebag cop, this light-skinned, fat, black dude. He hated everybody. Hated black dudes, hated white dudes. I had gotten into it with him, bro, and I had to bite my tongue. He's just a total freaking douchebag. It's funny, because he heard me one day. I put a towel under my door to stop the freaking dust from blowing in there. He kicked it away. I said, man, I, just, I got allergies. He's like, I don't care. Don't do it. I said, I'm going to do it. And he's like, yeah, you, wanna, you want some of me? He's like, I run this place. I'm going to run. And I said, yeah, yeah, okay, you run this place. And then one day I was like talking to somebody on the phone. He was down the hall doing a round. And I said, some of these freaking cops don't get it, man. They can be followed. You know, I'm, I'm from this way. I'm like, people are from around here. I'm from around here. I got friends and family here. I said, I'm not going to get in it with no cop in here. I just call home. I said it. He looked, he heard it and he like looked at me and maybe he thought. You know, this dude's freaking got a point, man. I don't shouldn't be such a douchebag to these guys because the wrong one is going to call his brother to come over here and freaking shotgun in the back of my head. Anyways, he's working the day that I come in and doing the, and I'm like, oh, not this freaking douchebag doing mail because he was not a regular in our unit. He was kind of a rover because everybody hated him and they didn't want him in any one unit. Not even the cops wanted him in many because he always started problems. He had trouble. And so... He was doing a mail, and I walk up, you got any mail for Limbloom? And he freaking digs around, and all of a sudden he pulls out, and I see it. It's white. It's a white page, two pages of paper, folded in half, stapled. And I'm just like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. Uh, I got it. I got it. He's looking at me like, he knows what it is. And the Damien dude was coming out of the day room, and I'm just standing there like in shock. I opened it up, and it says, you know, your parole conditions are blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, <gasps> and there's people all over. This is the base. This is the base, you know, at the officer's desk. And people are walking by, and a Damien dude looks at me. He comes walking by. He's like, you got it, huh? I'm like, hell yeah, bro. I was in tears. I ran over there and I hugged him. I'm like, thanks. I was hugging everybody, man. I was walking around hugging everybody. And I didn't even care. Even people that didn't like me, like I was kind of acquainted with. I'm like, what's up? I got my parole. And uh, that was a very big, very big deal. But the problem was, now I really got to be on my toes because haters, you know, all these lifers and guys doing mad long time, they hate that you got a parole. They hate that you're going home. They're so petty and jealous, and they know that you can't do anything. Like They know they can say anything they want to you and disrespect you in any way, and you can't do nothing because you got a parole in your pocket. So they can act like, you know, you're a bitch. What are you going to do? You're going to slap a guy while you got a parole in your pocket? No, because you're, you're trying to go home. I think it was like 90 days before I went home, it was. And I had to take this one little class. It was like a reentry class. It was kind of stupid. But the main reason I believe that I got the parole was because I was in that college program. That college program disinsured. didn't matter what I did. I could have had bad behavior, bad whatever. There was eyes on me. There was the Department of Justice, the Beer Group, the Bill Gates Foundation. They were watching me. If he would have flopped me, what would have been his reason? You looked at me and said, he's got great institutional behavior, did all his requirements, aced all his classes, straight he's in college, did everything right, has a family to go home waiting for him, everything's perfect, and you flop him? Well, that wouldn't make any sense. Then they would have reached out to the people in the Department of Corrections. Why'd they flop this guy? I mean, we got thousands of dollars invested in this guy to see if he gets out and, and like screws up and then you just don't let him out because what the, the parole officer had a bad day i mean because based on what we see this inmate is ideal parolee he's done everything perfect he's 
Well, that's the reason why I got the parole. Had I not been in the college program, I believe they would have flopped me. And I would have been in there for another two, three, four, five years. I might still be there. Who knows? Thanks to, you know, God blessed me with this miracle of this college program they put me in. And because of it, there was outside parties looking at me, watching me, studying me. And that is what, you know, helped me, I believe. This is the craziest part. The day that I got released, there was this heat wave going through Detroit. It was a horrendous heat wave. And it had been like 95 degrees for like 10 days. And it's, you know how hot that is in prison? You're living in a concrete bunker. So during the day, it absorbs the heat. And just so at night, it doesn't cool down. You're just in this hot-ass cement box. And it was just horrible, man. And I had two fans, these little tiny crappy fans. I'd had them for 10 years. And one of them, you had to oil it like every four hours or it'd freeze up. And I had to get oil from the maintenance guys and stuff. But that's how I stayed sane. But I would, it was so hot that I couldn't sleep. And I was, I was nervous. The truth was, I was nervous as hell that they were going to find some open case to something that I had done years ago and then say, nope, you can't go. I know it sounds crazy, but I had been involved in some shootings. I had been involved in a lot of crazy stuff. And I just thought, you know, you just don't know what can pop up over the years. I've had it happen before, years ago when I was in a jail. I was about ready to walk out of jail. And they're like, oh, you got another case here. And so I was just, I couldn't sleep. I was so anxious, so nervous, so hot, so miserable. I'm not joking when I tell you that. Honestly, the last two weeks, I averaged probably like two hours a night of sleep. And I was working out really hard. I got in really good shape. I dropped down to like 190 pounds. I was ripped up. I was working out like two hours a day, whether it be cardio or whatever. It's summertime, so I was out there in the sun getting a nice tan and on the yard for a couple hours. And I was just, I was exhausted. I was so exhausted. And I was eating a lot of good food. I had, I had a, you know, I had a plug in the kitchen that was bringing me hard-boiled eggs, bringing me, you know, all the good things with protein. I had a plug in the garden that's bringing me fresh vegetables. I ate good. For a guy in prison, it was like Goodfellas for me. I was the guy who lived like Goodfellas in prison. I, I definitely did that. It was, it was, I was one of the few people. It was expensive, but I had people helping me from the street so I could do it. And I was eating a dozen eggs a day, so I was in really good shape, but I was exhausted. And those last 10 days, my God, I was, I was miserable. And that heat, I would sit there, I would take a, a washcloth and dip it in a bowl of water and then hang it off the, my TV stand and then lay under it under my pillow with my face facing up so the water would slowly drip over my forehead and face just to keep me cool enough to not have a heat stroke. It was that bad. It was horrible. You're supposed to get a medical exam before you go. Before they can let you out, you got to get a medical exam. You got cleared by medical. Most guys get their medical exam a couple weeks prior. Well, I had a beef with the medical there. I had these headaches, the headaches I have now. I had a blood vessel burst in my eye, and they didn't take me to the doctor, and now I'm probably blind because of that. And I've had these migraines, and I did force them to give me surgery, uh, septoplasty, thanks to my family and my wife. But they were like, really douchey to me, the medical. And so I didn't get my clearance. And I'm like, why am I not getting my clearance? I'm gonna... So it's the day before I leave, I'm supposed to get my parole, and you can't leave without medical clearance. It's, it is what it is. So my wife calls the warden the day before. And I think she get a hold of like the aide or the deputy warden. And they're like, she's like, well, um, here, let me patch you through the medical. See what they say. They patch you through. It's like, oh, he's on the call out for Thursday. This is, by the way, Monday. And I'm getting out on Tuesday, I think it was. And they say, oh, he's on the call out for Thursday. My wife is like, he gets out tomorrow. 
They're like, oh, well, well we didn't know. I'm like, eh, well, we'll put them on the call for tomorrow morning. So they put me on the call out for the next morning, which is my parole date, my release date. It's a beautiful, sunny, 90-degree day. Gorgeous. I had this dude painted me this dope shirt that was the cover of my novel on the shirt. Painted, hand-painted, and it was dope. It was sweet. And then I had these khaki shorts. I had these khaki pants. I had made them into shorts. I had them cut off in the hem. So they're short and they fit real good. And that's what I walked out in with a footlocker full of my belongings. And, 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 and that's it. I think I had a duffel bag and a footlocker. So I'm waiting. I get up. 8 o'clock. Finally, they call me over to medical. They give me a quick physical. They clear me. I go back. And I say to the, the one chick, there's these two black women who worked in my unit. They're usually kind of half-assed nice. One of them, Miss Jackson, she was she was pretty nice. She cut me some slack on a few things, man, and she could have bolted me up. Like, I had a bunch of contraband crap on my cell. And, and they were nice enough to me. But the one was kind of a bitch sometimes. And then this morning, I said, I'm like, yo, you know, when are they going to call me to go? She's like, she go, go back to your cell. We'll call you when we call you. I'm like, okay, you know, whatever. <laughs> and I went back to my cell. And about a half an hour goes, I'm just sitting there. And this goes to show you how many, how few friends that I had in prison. Nobody was coming over and saying, man, good luck, man. God bless you, man. Gonna miss you. Nothing. Not one person. I think I had a couple before this that say, all right, man, good luck. But really, there was guys who knew I was going, and they just ignored me. They don't give a flip. Man, I don't want to hear about you going home. So I'm sitting in my cell. I'm a bunk by myself, sweating my balls off. at this little Mexican bunkie. He was cool. I talked to him. And finally, it's like about 9 o'clock, I hear, Limloom, what are you doing? You want to leave? And I freaking say, I go run down the hall. I'm like, what's up? She's like, do you want to go or what? I'm like, yeah, I've been waiting for you to call me. She's like, well, they called. I'm like, yeah, you didn't tell me. So she's just being a dumb bitch. She's like, she didn't even call me and say, Limboom, come on, you're ready to go. Nothing. She's like, let me, you want to go or you want to stay? And how would I know if they call? I'm sitting in my cell. So I grab my stuff, put it on a freaking like a dolly. I'm walking across the yard, man. And I'm looking around. For the last time in my life, I'm looking at a prison yard. Blue skies, people were moving around, you know, people were going here, people were going there, there's officers at the shack. I'll never forget, the officers at the shack, there was like three, four officers at the shack, and they see me, and I'm in my street clothes, pulling this dolly, and they looked at me, they're like, you going home? I said, yes, sir, and they're like, you know, good luck. I'm like, thanks, man, no luck needed, and I just, I went up there, and and I was still not sure they were going to let me out. I still thought they were going to snatch me and pull me back, but... I get up there, and I'm in this freaking room. It's actually the visiting room, and there's about, I don't know, seven or eight of us. And I'm like, you know, we're all going home. Like, What's the longest anybody's got here? And they're like, five years. Meaning the longest anyone had done amongst us from going home was one guy had five years. Everybody else was shorter. I'm like, I'm, I'm coming off 13 years. And they're like, damn. And one guy knew me. He's like, he knew who I was. Like, knew of me, knew the whole mob story background. He was kind of like, man, like, thought I was like a celebrity almost, you know what I mean? And he's like, hey, I know who you are. He's telling me stories about this. He heard about that, that. He actually freaking took my number down and everything and like my prison number and then looked me up when I, when I so he could find me. And he did on social media, on Facebook. He's like, yo, I'm this guy in the day room. I don't know what happened to him. I haven't heard from him like a couple times. But but anyways, so they processed us, you know, in an in a, in a order. And then it came my turn and they tell me to come up to this window and they give me my state issue parole ID, issue me a check for any money that I had in my account, or it's a debit card thing. There wasn't much in there because I made sure to spend it. You know, so whatever, like maybe it's seventy bucks in there. And then they give me my parole terms and blah blah blah. I don't know what it was. I was kind of at this point, I was kind of in this, this in this daze, in this 
weird, surreal, sublime days. I, I, I couldn't believe it was really happening. You know what I'm saying? And, and those guys in there with me, they could tell I was feeling like that. They were all talking to me. I was all quiet. And they're just looking at me going, damn, bro, you just did 13 freaking years. I'm like, yeah, my crew's out here waiting for me, man. And they're like, what? I'm like, yeah, I got a freaking... Now, if you're, <laughs> your people, and you leave, the guys who come after me, you'll ask them, <laughs> that guy, Gunner, how do you, like, what was that like? Because then I walked out of there, I walk out through the Sally Port, and I have four of my boys, and they're all waiting. I'm dragging this freaking footlocker, and they, they grab, they all give me hugs, and they're like, ah, boom, run up and just, you know, all hug me, and they're like, let's get the F out of here. And they grab my gear, and like, come on. And the second I step out the door, boom, they start Facebook living. Facebook live. They couldn't do it inside. It was illegal to video inside. So as soon as we stepped out the door, like, boom, let's do this Facebook Live. And there's a video on my YouTube of me, um, the first moments I was free, walking out. And I was, you can see, man, I was shell-shocked. I'm just like, what the F, man? I can't believe it. I almost puked, man. I got nauseous and that earlier in the day. I hadn't slept again for hours. I mean, I hadn't slept more than a couple hours for like two weeks. I'm exhausted. And I lost like 20 pounds. I got bags under my eyes. I look horrible. In my opinion, I look horrible. And I didn't feel good either. I was just exhausted, man. And they're like, and I'm walking out of there. So my, I jumped into a brand new Hellcat. They had the sticker in the window still. You know, 750 horsepower Hellcat. We pulled up to the, the sign there where it said Macomb Prison. And we took a selfie. My first ever selfie with me and my boy. who's was not really my boy anymore because he turned out to be a freaking scumbag. But... But, uh, and we took a picture of us and then we jump on the expressway, which is right there. And he, he, we're doing like 120 miles an hour in like 30 seconds, ripping down I-94, heading to Bob Evans because they want to take me to death. And I'm like, what? I'm telling him, slow down, bro. Slow down, dude. I mean, I had like vertigo and crap. I haven't moved. I haven't moved faster than my feet can move me in 13 years. And suddenly I'm doing 130 miles an hour in an LCAT. I'm like, dude, slow down, please. I, he wasn't doing it. He thought it was funny. He's going, nah. I, I grabbed his arm and said, please, please, bro. Stop, please. For me. I'm asking you, stop. And he, he saw I was serious. So he slowed way down. I said, bro, I'm going to get sick, man. What are you doing, bro? I said, I left prison freaking three minutes ago. You're going to kill me and be out of prison three freaking minutes and I'm going to die? Nah, bro. So they took me to Bob Evans. They opened up the, uh, they gave me a bag of gifts. And, uh, you know, I made a couple cool videos, heartfelt videos, like her, and uh, Facebook Live, and to my wife, who was waiting for me up up north. She was waiting, she was cooking us a big feast. And they, I ordered steak and eggs, pancakes, and all this delicious stuff that I hadn't had in, you know, more than a decade. And then they gave me some gifts, and... One funny story is that is that they gave me an iPhone, and uh, I didn't know how to use it. Of course, I never even seen an iPhone. But they gave me there was a hat in there, like a Detroit hat. On the phone, there was like a, a post-it note that said "slide to turn on," but it had fallen off and was inside the hat. So when I picked up the hat to put on the hat, it said "slide to turn on." And I'm like, I'm trying to read it, and they're all watching me, trying to figure out what I'm trying to figure out. And they're like, "What's that?" I'm like, the hat says "slide to turn on." We. What do you mean? How you slide ahead? They all start dying laughing. They bust out laughing. In my mind, like I thought it was like a new technology, like a new hat. Oh, you, you know, you slide this, hit a button, and the hat just instantly fits to your head. And then they were dying laughing. I thought it was funny. And then after that, they uh, we ate, and you know, they made a few videos. And then my two boys drove me home. Um, it was a five-hour drive. I did stop to see my dad on the way up because he was on the way up. I hadn't seen my dad in 15 years. Now, that wasn't real emotional for him because he's really kind of a cold dude. It was emotional for me. I hadn't seen my dad in 15 years. And he looked old. You know what I mean? He, he, he was like now in the 70s and he's just skinny and he looked like an old man now. 
and that was kind of made me feel sad that I'd missed all those years with him, you know, and that he's getting old and not going to be around much longer. And then um, they drove me home to my new house and my new life, and I ended up sneaking up on my wife. And a lot of people know the story, but I told them my boys because they were videoing everything. They thought everything was going you know, to be great for posterity, and they're like, "All right, let's get this video." I said, "No, man, past the house because in the middle of the woods, by the way." In the middle of the woods. This is like eight miles outside of the little town we live on in the middle of the freaking woods, five, like four miles down this little road that goes to nowhere and it ends in the snowmobile trail. And I'm like, just go past the house a couple hundred yards. I'm going to sneak up on her. And so they did. I said, just give me, they wanted to video it. And I said, no, no, no. This is for her and I. This is for us. This is a private moment. I don't want this to be for anybody but me and her. Just give me five minutes and come up. You know, you can video that. And they're like, yeah, we got you, bro. My, my cousin Joe, my boy Billy. And um, so they let me out and I go creeping through the woods. And like I said, it's like 100 degrees that day. And I knew my wife was cooking me a feast. And I come creeping through the woods and I, and I, like, and I look, I'm trying to get to the back of the house. And I see her, she's sitting there on the back deck, just sitting there all by herself. And I thought she would have heard me, but the, you know, like the woods ends about 30 yards, 40 yards from the house. And then it comes like the lawn, the back lawn. It's very sandy, so it was easy to stay quiet. But I thought for sure she would have heard me crunching in the leaves and coming through. Nothing. She didn't even know I was there. I walked right up to her. She had no idea. She had heard a car go by. She knew we were going to be there any minute. She just didn't know when. She heard a car go by, and she kind of looked, and the car kept going. So she's like, ah, oh, that ain't them. And then they didn't know. So then I creeped up on her, and I was like, Birdie. Because I call her Birdie. I'm like, hey, Birdie. And she turned around, oh, Gunny! And like I ran up, jumped the railing onto the back deck, hugged her, and you know, burst into tears. And you know, this is the first free world moment that I had with my wife. I had been with her for seven years now, um, but I'd never been free with her. I never got to kiss her, you know, with, with impunity and hold her and just, you know, and just, you know, the tears, they, they just flowed. And so um, I just hugged her and kissed her and seemed like a minute, but must have been five seven minutes went by and my boys come walking around the corner filming and they walk up and they video us and we're both you know, kind of crying and film you know and, and whatever and and i just it was it's a very emotional moment everybody was in tears my boys were in tears i was in tears and i was like uh, well here, the the last part about this story i'm rambling about this is um it was obviously i wanted to share i wanted to save myself from marriage because we plan to get married the next day that was the plan was to get up and go get married the next day and um needless to say i failed at that i wasn't able to hold myself together and so we were, we were up for several hours you know doing what you think we would do and it was super hot super sweaty and um and uh anyways the next day i started my life i got married i got baptized um i just that's how it began it started that day and from then on it was my life began man and i put that episode behind me so prison was no joke you don't want to go there make make good choices because you don't want that moving forward a bright future awaits this remarkable man and like a character in one of his novels the story will be written by one of the most inspired writers of our generation this concludes the legend of alan gunner lindblom all right, great story. So I'm reading one of his uh, novels right now. It's a part. It's a two-part novel, but it's uh, to be a king, and 
I'm telling you, it's an amazing story. Like, I can't wait to get back to it. If you like the movie, The Godfather, this story is better than The Godfather. I swear it is. And I feel like I read, I read a lot, you know? It's like, it's just amazing writing level. And to actually kind of know something of the author is unusual experience for me. Not to mention that I lived in this area, so I kind of know the parks. I know what he's talking about. It's almost like historical fiction for you. Yeah, yeah. And, and if you listen to even the four-part series, you'll see things in this book that you know where that came from. You know what I mean? He, he, it's not about him, but it parallels his experience and stuff. But I'm telling you, just an incredible work of fiction. And he's uh, working on other novels now. I think he's doing Blindsight 2020 now and stuff. But uh, he's, a, he's a fantastic writer. He really is. Are his books available for people who prefer, like, Kindle and things like that? Yeah, yeah. There's audio. There's uh, there's everything. Okay. You can get it in any, any way you want to get it. And I think if you get it from his actual website, which is like GunnerDetroit.com, I think, you can get a signed copy. Yep, uh, GunnerDetroit.com. You can get them. I'm looking at it right now. Amazon, Kindle, Audible, iTunes, all, all those platforms. All right, guys, it's been a long night. I hope you enjoyed the series. Absolutely, I yeah. did. Joshua the Intern, you got anything for us? Look out for the next episode, Little Nicky Scarfo. Oh, don't call him Little <laughs> Nicky. He don't like that. Find out why next episode. Have a good week, everybody. Yep. Good night and God bless. Thank you for listening to Partners in Crime. This week's episode is an adaptation of several different historical accounts. Music is courtesy of Kevin McLeod. All sources and attribute links can be found in the show notes. If you enjoyed this episode, you can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Partners in Crime Podcast. Links are in the show notes. If you didn't like the show, keep your mouth shut. No one likes a rat.